This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Thank you all for coming. I'm so excited to be speaking with you or to you once again. These are my favorite nights. And um, as I was trying to prepare a lesson, I was thinking of a topic and I decided on the Holy Bible, a brief history. And like you think of, like you hold this Bible and we read it often and we, we sit here. We wonder how did it get from the pens and from the quills of the original authors to the form we hold in our hands today. And understanding that path is vitally important to understanding our faith. Understanding where we got our physical Bible, where it hailed from, and trusting its validity is a bedrock tenet of our faith. Since if we cannot trust this manuscript, our faith means nothing. It has no base or meaning. So tonight I'm going to break up the history of the Bible into four, four periods. Old Testament times, New Testament times, early church, and finally the modern English translation. So let's start with Old Testament times. Many writers contributed to the Old Testament that Christians hold as canon. The Septuagint, which was written around 250 BC, is considered the foremost authority of which Bible books are canonized and considered biblical. The evolution of the Testament began with Moses, who started writing in sometime between 14th and 15th BC. And he first wrote the Pentateuch, or the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Most of what we understand to be the Old Testament came from centuries of devoted work by scribes whose life work was to painstakingly copy manuscripts from scribes who did the same and so on, so that the scripture could last for generations. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a testament to this. Thousands of years after they were written, we can still hold them in our hand and compare them to the scriptures we have and find that they are basically identical. Besides the books like the Prophets and Proverbs and Psalms, it becomes more of a mystery as to who put these tales to parchment. We really have nothing more than tradition at this point who wrote Kings, who, which originally, traditionally held four books, the four books of Kings and Chronicles. Also books like Ruth, Esther, Song of Songs, which is traditionally attributed to Solomon, have no historically provable author. But this doesn't mean that theories about who wrote these abound. It's commonly accepted that if a book, say Deuteronomy, records the death of its purported author, then that section or chapter was written by a close associate. Many believe that Eleazar, the son of Aaron, wrote Deuteronomy, I think, chapter 34, which records Moses' death. Job possibly was written by Moses himself, from either Job's writings or by divine word. Tradition puts Samuel as the author of Judges, Ruth, and his own life story, with possibly the prophet Nathan finishing up the books after he died. The saga, the giant saga, telling the tales of both the Israelite and the Judean kings, seems too distant to have been written close to the events they record. Many believe that Jeremiah wrote the two books of kings, 
in around the 5th century BC. While the kings are very politically focused, the two books of the Chronicles are very spiritually focused. So it wouldn't be a stretch to think that Ezra, who was a priest, wrote them as Judah was returning from the Babylonian exile. Esther was probably written by Mordecai, who himself was integrally involved in the events of the book and a scribe. Second, New Testament times. According to BibleArchaeologyReport.com, to date we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, with an astounding 2.6 million pages of biblical text. While some of these manuscripts are small and fragmentary, the average size of the New Testament is about 450 pages. New Testament manuscript. All this to say that we are not lacking manuscripts to compare. We can take all of these fragments and all of these manuscripts and compare them for continuity. There was an exhibit in the Christian Museum illustrating this, for those who all went and saw that. While the authors of the New Testament are a lot less mysterious, there's a lot less mystery surrounding who wrote what, Dating them is just as hard. Papyrus P52 is arguably the oldest known New Testament manuscript. Experts place the window of authorship around A.D. 100 to 150. It contains 14 lines of John's Gospel, which is traditionally one of the last written Gospels of the four. Basically, all New Testament books were written by the end of the first century. While there is little concurrence beyond that, this passage from the book How We Got Our Bible by Neil Lightfoot beautifully explains the evolution of the book. This is an excerpt from page 8 and page 9 of the How We Got Our Bible. It says, The New Testament came into being gradually also, formally speaking of the Old Testament. Although the books themselves were written in a comparatively short period of time, A.D. 50, A.D. 100, these books were simply letters penned by inspired men and addressed to different churches and individuals. From the first, however, they were looked upon as distinctly authoritative writings, and thus they were received with respect and read in the public assemblies where Christians worshipped, in which he references 1 Thessalonians 5.27, which is Paul exhorting the Christians to read his letter aloud in the assembly. Soon afterwards came the interchange of extant letters among the churches, in which Lightfoot brings up Colossians 4.16, which says, Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. The individual churches this way profited from an exchange of apostolic instructions. The next step was the embodiment in writing of the central events of the life of Jesus. At first, oral accounts of his works by eyewitnesses filled the needs of the infant church. But as years passed, eyewitness accounts became few and insufficient. Now the demand was for authoritative written narratives. And in fulfillment of this demand, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John set out their witness to Jesus. The logical outgrowth of the four Gospels was the book of Acts, which told the story of the primitive church. As a kind, and as a kind of climax to the whole came Revelation, with its prospect of a triumphant Christ. My only deviation from the commonly accepted dating tradition is with the book of Revelation. I believe it was written earlier than tradition has it written at the A.D. 90s. One of the reasons is that it has no mention of the temple's destruction in A.D. 70. 
To paraphrase the words of biblical scholar Hank Hanegraaff, if it indeed was written in the AD 90s, and not mentioning the raising of the temple, which was probably one of the single most important events in Jewish history, it would be the same as writing a history of the Holocaust and omitting the fact that Jews were killed during it. Hanegraaff puts the possible dates of the writing of the book of Revelation in the AD 60s. Let's move on to the early church. Even as early as the mid-2nd century, Justin Martyr records in his book, First Apology, that Christians were gathered to worship and they would read the accounts of the apostles. Less than a century from the lifetime of the apostles and their writings were already widespread throughout the church. But as the apostles faded to memory, and as the church grew astronomically, so did things like heresies and apocryphal books and the like. This led to church meeting and ecumenical councils, trying to hash out what they thought was in accordance to Jesus' words and the apostles' teachings. The first council was called by Emperor Constantine in A.D. 325. It decried the heresy of Arianism, which claimed that Jesus was not divine. The early church held four councils, three more, up until A.D. 451. They tackled heresies like Nestorianism, which believed that there were two separate persons within Christ, one divine and one mortal, and also Monophysitism, which believed that Jesus had only a divine nature and was never truly man. But in all, but in all of this, there's a glaring omission. There was never a council to fully decide New Testament canon. Even regional councils like the Council of Hippo in A.D. 393 and the Council of Carthage in A.D. 419 only affirmed what was commonly accepted. A church historian, Eusebius Pamphili of the 4th century, was probably the first to put the 27-book canon we know today in writing, though he footnoted that some tertiary epistles, like those of James, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude, were suspect but commonly accepted. So deciding the New Testament was never left up to a small group of powerful church individuals, as some conspiracy theories suggest, but it was formed by the church as a whole and over a relatively short period of time. The more you read about this topic, the more you see the hand of the Holy Spirit in it. The compilation of these books defies all logic and human reasoning. No matter how many people opposed it, it nonetheless thrived. It could not be vanquished. Within two generations of Jesus, the canon was immortalized. And finally, the modern English translation. The first major English translation was by the hand of John Wycliffe, with the help of his friend John Purvey, among others. After several run-ins with the Roman Catholic Church, Wycliffe began translating the Bible from the Latin Vulgate, which was compiled by church leader Jerome in the early 380s. Wycliffe died in 1384, before his translation was finished. But a Middle English Bible was finished before the turn of the 13th century. Though Wycliffe's contribution to the English Bible is great, it can be argued that none gave more or suffered more for an English Bible than William Tyndale. William Tyndale focused and gave his life to one goal, to give everyone an original language Bible 
a Bible that was not from Latin, but was from Greek and Hebrew. Tyndale first studied at Oxford, Oxford, but was enrolled at Cambridge in 1510, studying Greek under the monk Erasmus. At Cambridge, it was here that he said his famous lines talking to a high-minded adversary, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth a plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. It was here that the fire of translating the Bible took hold of his soul. Erasmus, his teacher, published a Greek New Testament in 1516, which was the first of its kind. Tyndale immediately set about translating this into English. After opposition, Tyndale fled England in 1524 and took up refuge in Hamburg, Germany. Less than a year later was when he finished his first English translation of the New Testament. He tried printing it in Cologne, France, but enemies of the Reformation found out his, pre his presence there and chased him away, basically. He was forced to flee. He finally found Haven in Worms, Germany, where his work of the New Testament could finally be published. He smuggled these into the England, where it was met with violent opposition by the leaders of the time. How we got our Bible, the aforementioned book, says this about the next phase of translation. It says, In the meantime, Tyndale had taken up his work of translating the Old Testament from Hebrew. By 1530, he had translated and published the Pentateuch followed by Jonah in 1531, a revised Genesis in 1534, and two additional editions of his New Testament in 1534 and 1535. By now his translations, although not welcomed as yet, were not so violently opposed by the official England, and it appeared as though the long-fought contest might turn it in his favor. But many Romanists were still determined to stamp out this heresy. Tyndale was thus betrayed and imprisoned in 1534. In 1536, after spending months imprisoned, he was strangled and burned at the stake, crying, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Tyndale was martyred, trying to decentralize and break the monopoly that the Roman Catholic Church had on the distribution of the scriptures. He gave the common man unfiltered scriptures, which to this day is a mighty blow against the forces of darkness. Tyndale's work had started a fire, a fire that softened the heart of England's official rulers. He started a revolution that would yield the King James Version 75 years later. The KJV was the first Bible to give everyone, from the layman to the scholar, a translation that was satisfactory and accessible. The process began in 1604 when King James called the Council of the Hampton Court Conference, meeting of a myriad of religious believers and leaders to talk about religious tolerance. It was here that the new translation was discussed and voted upon and agreed upon. King James personally laid down many of the ground rules of this translation, the biggest one being that commentary was restricted only what was absolutely necessary for the translation. The translation work itself began in 1607. Their purpose was not to make a new translation from scratch, but to revise the 1602 Bishop's Bible, the commonly accepted translation of the time. It took 48 scholars, almost three years, to translate and pass around their translations to be viewed, edited, 
to the point where they thought it was worthy of printing. In 1611, the first personally usable book, Bible, rolled out of the presses. In these troubling times, surety seems like a fantasy. But for those who search for it, they will find it in these time-tested pages. The more I studied the series of events it took to formulate the Bible we hold today, the more, like I said earlier, I saw the hand of the Holy Spirit in it. Like it says in 1 Peter 1, 22-25, it says, Since you have, been, you have purified your souls in the obeying the truth through the Spirit, and sincere love of the brethren, love of one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Thank you for your time. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.